Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio, joined by my colleagues and friends, uh, Jason, Dale Oakland, and uh, Michael John Berg. And uh, very happy to be here, the three of us together. The semester is, uh, is sneaking up on us. We uh, Our summer is nearing its end, Jason's enchanted summer do you have any trips planned yet jason no not a one um and uh mike you have been busy working mm-hmm. i know prepping classes mm-hmm. uh i myself have been uh, also trying to do similarly um and read and uh and so we are gathered here the three of us something that will hopefully become more regular as we make our way into the school year and we are going today uh to be discussing the topic of aesthetics uh, and aesthetics, especially as it relates to the Christian faith, right? What is the relationship between those two things? And there's a lot of history to that uh, within the church today. There's a lot of different opinions about that. Um, most of you, if you've been to more than one church in your life, uh, have already been exposed to that, um, whether that be differences in aesthetics because of the resources available or the theology behind something um, or uh the, just the local culture, right? What they've seen before and what they're bringing to bear. So that's what we'll be talking about today. Uh, we are part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. You can go to 1517.org to find out more about them. They've got podcasts, blog posts um, that are devotions. They've got free academy courses. Uh, they have a publishing house. You name it, go to 1517.org. Give yourself some time. Click around. You will find plenty to keep your attention. And lest we drag this out, then without further ado, Michael, would you like to give us our disclaimer? This show doesn't speak for our churches or church bodies or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism. Because well as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And that brings us to our main topic, and since we don't have a free-for-all today, I figured I'd just briefly uh, bring up a couple developments as of late to maybe catch our, our listeners up. Um, I had a, a big day the other day. I messaged Jason and Mike, um, neither of which expressed any um, share of joy for me. Uh, well, Jason, I guess, did a little bit. I, for $50, got three suit coats and a chair. Um, and that chair, we had that uh, pastor's office episode, and I was over uh, talking to campus pastor Greg Lyon, and he had listened to that, and he was uh, talking about how he wants a reading chair for his office, and I've always, I'll be honest, I've been jealous of Michael's chair in his office. It's Jason, a nice chair. There. He's got a nice chair yep. in that reading area. Um, and I thought, I, w- I would really like a reading chair too, and I've also thought, you know, I last 
I would say last year, last semester, I upped my my aesthetics, my personal aesthetics. I dressed more professionally on the whole. Uh, Jason, you don't really can't really compare because you you I've, haven't been here long enough. But I've only heard it stories. A, it was a better year. Oh yeah, yes. Um, I've uh, by a lot. And so I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna try to build on that. And I got I've been looking for suit coats. Mm. And I thought you know what. Some of these are just crazy priced. Uh, Nick likes to go thrifting with my with his friends, and uh, I said, "If you see a place that has some suit coats, uh, let me know." And so he texted me, and I went to St. Vinny's, three decent condition, and picking them up today from the dry cleaner. All three dry cleaned for under under twenty bucks. I got a Tuesday special. Um, but uh, so I I now have the suit coats, but I have a reading chair, and I was curious, did either of you? look peek through the window of my office to see the chair or? i didn't really get a chance to to see it no i'll, I'll wait until you're sitting in it with one of your okay. new suit coats get the whole i will uh, be <laughs> i would like your opinion on a do you find the chair aesthetically pleasing and then b aesthetically does it fit as i have it in the office as best it can with the space it's I tough have. in our office because we have the dorm mm -hmm. concrete bricks yep. nothing really i have a giant pillar right in the middle yeah. of my office yes i do too mine's a little bit hidden yep. away from yours but yeah um what are those those must be just to keep the building up i so. yep i'm i'm assuming um, so at once it's nothing fits aesthetically and yet everything does yeah i've thought about getting rid of the table in there yeah that's and just doing some chairs but i think the table's also like you when have you're a meeting lot of with student students meetings, it, yeah it pr like gives them room to put their computer down and yeah creates a barrier you know um, so it maybe feels a little less like a you know when do we office. get bigger offices with like see sometimes panel. i wish mine was bigger but then i've been in other offices on campus and some ours are kind of big compared to a lot yeah. so i don't want to complain too much because if they were to move us yeah yeah no, this it works. I just assume that eventually we get vaulted ceilings and <laughs> like an ante room yeah. yeah. And then, uh, yep. so the second thing I was going to bring up, and, and this is not to get political, but just can, to mention it. Can I just say on the aesthetics of your chair, just from the, the picture, it looked like it had some, you know, nice lines and Thank seemed you. to be a, and it's clean, a classic, yeah. you know, look to a chair. So, um, so that's as much as I can say right now at this well, point. I do appreciate that, Jason. Yeah. And then the other thing, not to get political, but just because this is a development that I'm excited about, and I think Michael probably is too because we've talked about this. I think we did a lot of the America stuff before Jason yeah, I was, was on a lot. But, yeah. um, but what shirt am I wearing today, Michael? You got your 2020 Yang Gang Gang. Yeah, Yang Gang. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, not because I'm promoting Andrew Yang. I'm not saying you have to, to vote for him. He's not even running for anything. But Michael, you knew right away why I was wearing it. What What's going on here? Well, there may be a a, a viable third party. We, I will have to wait and see. Oh. But, uh, you know, maybe it'll be the party of like, hey, let's um, forget about ide uh, uh, ideology for a second and say, maybe let's just do a few let's things that some work. Yep. That yep. work. Like, the more I think about it, I go, there's a, there's a lot of ideologies that get in the way of just some Basic government. Basic governmental functions. Yep. Like, let's repair infrastructure. Right. Yeah. Even more than that, being creative with some environmental things. Sure. Being creative with... Um, Education. Some, even some economic sort of things. Yeah. You know, like, 
why am I getting all worked up about this when this actually may work and, you know, this, let's just try it. Yeah. And which is what I think probably attracted many people to join the Yang gang yeah. in the first place. And it was a cool name. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> so I'm not saying that I will vote for this third party. I'm, I'm not saying anyone should, but I am excited. I just think if there could be another viable choice that makes things better on so many levels because you don't just have these two platforms that becomes hyper-partisan. But we'll see. Maybe this will peter out like every third-party movement mm-hmm. has. Um, I mean, really, in our lifetime, the only third-party candidate to really mix things up was Ross Perot, Ross huh? Perot. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the day. You could you could argue that the Green Party, Ralph Nader, like Ross Perot, was influential in w- somebody winning he and definitely somebody got not blamed. winning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Ross Perot probably more than Nader, but so you could make the case for both. Yeah, and I think some people blame Pat Buchanan with uh, yeah, George A.W. Bush not winning could be. his second term. but yeah. So we'll see. I believe it's going to be called the Forward Party. Um, I'm not positive, but... Uh, I believe Andrew Yang and then Christy Todd Whitmer, old governor of New Jersey, are going to be the two chairs, Republican, and this seems to be a mix of Republicans and Democrats who have joined this. So um, so maybe down the road we'll have to have an episode, another America losing its mind, and we can... Well, I think it would be interesting, especially from your point of view, because you, you live and breathe this more than, than any of us on this campus, is like German politics, like... What does it mean to actually have three or four parties? Sure. How does that actually work out? They have out? to form a coalition for and, government. And what are the what are the advantages and disadvantages of that? Um, I, I've shared this before that I always thought two party system was great because you end up somewhere in the middle. Well, I think I've it worked that way for a long time. I right? think that those days are past. That you then just become hyper polarized, right? And nothing yep. gets done. Um, and and I think as a I, I will speak for myself, but I think. A lot of people would would agree that a a Christian in America, let's just I hate this phrase, but Bible believe in Christian in America. You know that's code for we believe that the word of God isn't errant. But right. everybody believes in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Somebody who takes the scriptures seriously. <laughs> um, you re- you really don't have anywhere to go, mm-hmm. and. What's really dangerous is people think they have a way to go, either left or the right, and that's really problematic. And so um, at some point you're like, I, I'm just not going to wrap up my identity at all with a political party, but it does help if you, you can be a little bit more engaged when there's maybe three or four or five parties where you could go, I could vote for a coalition Right. I could vote for something getting And no done. one is going to get their like hardcore knowing full well fringe views yeah. through, yep. And knowing full well that you are going to give up some core beliefs uh you are, everybody's going to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Which is we've convinced ourselves that if we go left or right then we're not giving up our core beliefs when the, to the original point. There's really nowhere to go where you cannot give up something huge as right. as a thoughtful Christian, you are going to give something up if you tie yourself to any political party. Anyone trying to vote their conscience is going yeah, to struggle just, um, to find a candidate where they can have a completely right. clear conscience. And I think we that, that's maybe lesson number one is like, hey, don't. why are you expecting this from something that we can't should, deliver? We should, by the way, write that down. Conscience would be a really good episode. 
we'd have to do a little reading for it, but that would be, especially like when we talk about casuistry and in the 17th century, they really kind of wrestled with this. <clears throat> and what does Luther mean when he talks about with the, his conscience? All right, aesthetics. <clears throat> um, I forbid students from doing this in papers, but I'll go ahead and do it as we um, get into the start of our discussion here. And that is to, to start with a, um, a dictionary definition. Webster, please. I mean, it's not Webster's. Oh. It's Oxford. I'm trying to be classy. Okay. So this is the Oxford dictionary but aesthetics it's probably the classiest of dictionaries i'd have to say i like to think so i'm a big fan of their <laughs> the, comma. the classiest of all classless beginnings of a paper yes <laughs> um the branch of philosophy that studies the principles of beauty especially in art and if we take that apart a uh, it may be a branch of philosophy but just as we've talked about everyone's a theologian everyone is a philosopher right um People have opinions on beauty and uh, what is beauty, what's not beautiful, what's the point of beauty. That's a philosophy. It may be a bad philosophy, right? Everyone's a theologian, but many are bad theologians. Everyone's a philosopher. Many are bad. Um, but the principles of beauty, and then especially as beauty is expressed in art. And when we'll get to the church, historically, um, for a millennia or more, the church was the main patron of the arts, right? This is what kept, for all the grief the church gets about, you know, oh, the church doesn't care about this, that, whatever, like art, science, Ooh. history, whatever, like the church kept these things go, uh, going. Um, but principles of beauty, especially in art, and I think art will be a big part of what we talk about because these things will be expressed in art, um, but the idea of beauty itself and uh and here there could be debates. Is there such a thing as a beauty that has any objectivity? Uh, we like to think of, uh, you know, the hard sciences as objective. Math is objective. But in the West, you get to, like, history, theology, philosophy, and I would say especially the arts, and we get a, a hyper-subjectivity. Um, so everyone just has their own tastes and right. Um, everyone likes their own music. And, uh, I would say that for the Christian and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the Christian is actually going to believe if they're well catechized and they've spent time in the word that there is an objectivity to beauty to some degree. Um, because beauty, <clears throat> things are beautiful um, to the extent to which they conform, uh, not to get all platonic, right, <clears throat> but to uh, God's creation and will. Um, so not, I'm not going to say the ideals or forms, but we could talk about ideals. <clears throat> but to the degree to which they conform to um, how God uh, has created us and how he relates to us with love and mercy um, and then that they conform to uh, the purposes with which we've been created, and as Mike would say, human flourishing. Um, I'm saying I'm um too much, so I'll throw it to you guys. Would you agree or disagree that Christians, to some degree, um, biblically are, are kind of bound, not um, like bondage of the will, but if you get in the scriptures, you're bound to, you're going to arrive at some sort of objective 
um, views of beauty. I, I would, uh, I'll jump in, um, with this and, and tell me if, um, this kind of speaks to what you're saying or, or not. Um, this is something that I wrestled with, struggled with, got into a couple of discussions with earlier on, probably going back to school about some of these things. And then the whole idea of, you know, like art and aesthetic and beauty was kind of a puzzling thing to me because so much of what people were pointing to as, beautiful or aesthetic just didn't really seem to connect until I read the state of the arts book by Gene Edward Veith. And I thought he helped me really understand in reading of the book is that, you know, so this idea of having somewhat of an objective standard of, you know, beauty or whatnot, that in this, this idea of aesthetic, you know, that you have, you can point to two different things. Um, that, you know, this has some sort of message to it. And in that regard, you can evaluate the message, right? You can evaluate whether it's what it's trying to tell is good, positive, or just bad. Um, and not necessarily saying that a negative message is bad, but that it, the message that it's proclaiming is not, you know, good in the sense of conforming to what is good in the world or God's there's a moral aspect. There you go. Yeah. Um, and then the other side of it is the execution of it, right? Like, is this done well, you know, is it used, are the materials good, worthwhile, you know, um, uh, and is it executed? Well, yeah. Is, are, is the craft of whatever art, whatever medium, the artist is using is that well well done and then when you put the two you have good message with good execution of the form now you have something that is good or excellent yeah. right and then touching on the idea of taste you say you know everybody can have their own taste right but the acquiring of good taste is to be able to recognize and appreciate those things that are well done and excellent. Is that? Yeah, I think that's, that's really helpful. A, because it has the, the moral aspect to it. I, I make, I'd like to come back to that. And then the other one is a vocational aspect to it. Like if you, if you just say beauty is completely subjective and then I just throw some paint on a wall and, um, you compare that to a, you know, uh, um, Jackson Pollock. Who's the guy that does this? Jackson. Yeah, Jackson Pollock. Pollock. Yep. Um, that's offensive to him to say that we're somehow equal. I, mean, I think it's just it's common knowledge that there are certain things that are done well, right? Um, you may not like that style. You may not prefer that whatever. But there, there is, there is. We are attracted not only to to morality, but we are attracted to things done well, to success, right? And and I do think that 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 leads us to the the ask to ask the question, where does that come from? And I would say it comes from an ordered God. And so I think you can. It's not a, it's not a really great argument, but I think it's it's at least a discussion starter to say, if we have a sense of beauty, that 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 must. That, that leads us at least to the possibility of a God, right? So we talk about this in apologetics too. And maybe I can do my little bit that I do with the 
with the students and it is a bit because uh you know like all of these things there's you know a, a philosopher an atheistic philosopher can run circles around me or whatever but it's a it's a part of the discussion so uh what i'll do is i'll say um something like this um i'll, I'll ask them to raise their hand if if they believe that beauty is objective or subjective and make them choose and almost always says people say subjective and um and I will say, uh, let's start with this. Is is beauty in the eye of the beholder? And they all say, yes, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I say, well, think about location. If beauty is located in the eye of the beholder, when, where then is it not located? It's not located in the object. It's not in the outside world. And I think that's what we're after here, is that beauty is just a construct that I've come up with, a phenomenon. Um, or is it something that actually exists in the world? We're, we're talking about an age-old question right here. And so I'll try to make the case that beauty does, uh, uh, that, that is out in the, in, in the world. And so the, the next thing I'll say is uh, pretend like my, my daughter comes home from school crying because the boys called her ugly. What am I supposed to say? Which boy did this, Michael? Well, we'll get, we'll get him <laughs> in a little bit. The Yang gang will circle the wagons. Yeah. Um, you just let me know. And, I got uh, an e-bike. I can be there in five minutes. I can be there in 30 to 35 minutes. <laughs> I'll need about four hours to charge it. Um, what am I, as a father, what am I supposed to say? What am I not supposed to say? What I am not supposed to say is, well, be beauty is subjective. At least I think you're beautiful. Well, she doesn't care if dad. Right, what I, I say is like, the Johnstons are not traditionally beautiful people. <laughs> <laughs> this is other, just part of being is, a Johnston. This is what it is. No, what am I supposed to say? I'm supposed to make the affirmative, objective statement, you are beautiful, those boys are idiots. That's what I'm supposed to do. Now, the, the kids really, 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 really don't like this because they are stuck in, their default is relativism, right? That you get to make up your own truth, your own sense of beauty or whatever. And I've, I've, it, it actually takes a long time for some of them to get out of it, and some of them never do. And, and the idea of beauty, I mean, there's some philosophical reasons, blah, 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 we can, we can go there. But for their point of view, they just don't want to get around, especially on the high school level. They don't want to cede the authority of claiming beauty to anybody else, not even themselves. So I'll, 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 I'll first then say, okay, first of all, let's, complete, let's separate preference from beauty. You may prefer the color yellow over the color blue, but that's something different. Your taste is something different than objectively saying something is beautiful or something is ugly. And I think this is the difference also between decoration and art. Art would be something more that we would say, does it have a message? Um, um, is the execution there? Is it just supposed to give me some delight? Or is it is supposed to be just something in the background? Or is it something that makes me think? I stop and think, right? So those are, we separate those things. Now, what they're really after is they think I'm being exclusive by daring to claim something beautiful or ugly. And I flip around and I say it's actually the opposite. Because um, when, 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 when beauty is objective, I can say I have different taste but I have no right to call anything ugly unless I have some really good reasons to. 
So your so-called inclusive, where everybody has their own opinion, is actually very exclusive because I'm exclusive everything I don't like. It actually, my point of view actually makes me stop and think and say, okay, maybe that picture of a desert landscape doesn't seem to be beautiful to me because I like the, the lush woodlands of, of, of northern Wisconsin. But I'm forced to say, can I see beauty in there? And so I'm looking at the object to find beauty rather than just the shallowness of my taste, right? So I, I get most of them. There's always some holdouts, but I get most of them at least to agree that it's a possibility that beauty is objective. But the next question becomes, well, then what, how, what, is, the, what is the standard of this beauty? And I would say, whether you like it or not, I think it's, it's really tied to morality. So I'll use the example of, okay, you're standing at an art museum pretending like you know what's going on. And there's this big mural of some heroic event, you know, I don't know, from, from the ancient world. Or even something like, I don't know, firefighter uh, climbing down a ladder with a baby, from, saving a baby from a fire. And then the other uh, scene is a brutal mugging of your grandmother. And you're standing there looking at these two paintings. Your grandmother, who you love. Yeah, who you love. Not like someone who is a no. terrible grandmother. And they're, uh, and they're both technically, for the sake of, of argument, on the same level. And you're standing next to this guy who is just thrilled by the, the picture of the mugging. What do you do? Well, you, you take a couple steps the opposite direction, right? To somebody that would be attractive, attracted to that, there seems to be something, something a little bit off. We are attracted to heroic stories. We're attracted to integrity. We're attracted to those things. Even in a twisted, twisted world, we still like a happy ending. We still, we still try to find some sort of like integrity in the mob movie, right? At least they're loyal, that kind of thing. Why is it? Well, then you're in, well, then you're talking about uh, the art, the anthropological or moral argument for the existence of God. Where does this come from? I think I would argue beauty and morality both. See, the best explanation seems to be that there's an ordered world and a disordered world we call ugly. So, so we rightfully say racism is not just wrong but ugly. But it's ugly. We even will say that to our kids. Oh, you're being stop acting ugly. Or we'll we'll, we'll say if we see like uh, or that's disgusting. Yeah, or or if you see a scene like if you uh, elderly people like this uh, see see a young family getting walking down the street, that's beautiful, right? That's beautiful, right? So morality, I I think, has a connection to 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 beauty. Now, what about all of the the art that is you know about you know true crimes, all, all this kind of stuff? Well, it's precisely because we know there's an objective right or wrong even though there may be some gray areas, and there are. It's precisely because we know that, that these things are intriguing to us, right? Without those, those concepts, and dare I say, without the, the aesthetics of it, um, we, we wouldn't know, we wouldn't be intrigued by the, the drama or the tragedy or even the horror flick, right? Now, the, the game changer, I think, is really the theology of the cross because the cross, which is ugly, actually becomes beautiful, right? So even in this discussion, there is, there's an idea of suffering um, and, and the, the curse of the cross that helps us navigate 
I think, a complicated question when it comes to aesthetics. And we haven't even gotten to And it's to, an aesthetic you know, of love yeah. that the power of the cross is it's an aesthetic of love that is displayed, though, shown to um, to penetrate into the the darkest um, depiction. I mean, the crucifixion is, is human cruelty on full display. And yet, when you look at the crucifix, as someone who understands what Jesus is doing there, love penetrates even then into into that, which is a a powerful thing that evokes hope. I mean, the same as a movie where there's the hero who gives their life for someone else evokes hope in us. Because why does it evoke hope? Because we say there's people like that, right? There's, to some degree, humanity is loved. Well, the the degree to which Christ loves humanity is certainly more than, you know, someone jumping on a grenade in a war movie. Um, but in many ways, some of the most powerful stories in movies are just... Um, rip-offs of what happened on Good Friday. And, and the aesthetic is not is not the shallowness of my attraction. There was nothing that attracted us to, to him. So this beauty means something deeper than just my attraction, right. my subjective feeling. It's on right? purpose that yeah. God comes and hidden then, in Christ. And then God's renewal of what is actually evil and bad, like a cross. That's pure grace, right? Right. That's pure grace. And so I think you can get, you can talk beauty and get yourself both to the existence of God and to the cross. And I think that's why it's such a fabulous conversation to have, uh, um, not just with, with people who are Christian already, but, but even those who are maybe on the fringes. Yeah. And so I'm going to throw it back to you in just a second. Um, and obviously Jason can jump in with whatever, but I know, Mike, you have talked about this before, um, and I, Craig Parton, I know, has talked about this in some detail, and it actually even came to the college and spoke once, but uh, where he talks about apologetics, right, reaching out with Bach rather than with, uh, <clears throat> oh, who else does he say, but with for the tenderhearted. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's something about that that sometimes, maybe especially in modernity, we lost, mm -hmm. but just a couple things as you were talking that came to mind. To right, but maybe just one one point right here. The, um, I think it's Peter Kraft. Okay, and I'm about to go to him. This is crazy. Okay, who's okay. <clears throat> who has a or was it Avery Cardinal Avery Duelist? But anyway, there's a handbook for apologetics, and they're just paragraphs on all the arguments, kind of like a. Like okay, a, I was going to go to a different book. So okay, and and one of them he just says it's just one it's just one word Bach. Why, why, why does God exist? Johann Sebastian Bach, period. Right? Yeah. This is what we mean. Yeah. Okay. That, so when, can I just yeah, give one ahead. illustration that talking about like the, the true, true crime sort of thing. Have, have you, either of you read the, um, the devil in the white city? Mm -mm. It's <laughs> no, not at all. It's uh, about, uh, it's a true crime story about the Chicago world's fair in what? 1892, mm -hmm. three, Pabst got its famous blue ribbon right at the but they built this huge glittering facade for the world's fair to be hosted on the shores of lake michigan all the while the the first one of the first big documented serial killers is doing his grisly work you know blocks away 
uh, H. H. Holmes is this guy, and so that's the the con. You know, the, they're they're telling two contrasting stories: mm. is building this beautiful city and all these people coming and all these marvels, while this guy is building a, a place to torture people and end their lives. So it's interesting, interesting story, interesting contrast about and why is that a fascinating thing, right? So just now I'll kick no, it back I, to you. But all right, and that's maybe worth coming back to too because. <clears throat> that's one of the things I'm going to hit on, but I've got four quick points, and I'm going to keep them quick. Um, you talked about, you know, an objective view of art and the fear that this limits things or um, the fear that this is going to create, you know, kind of these elitist judges, and so um, it's going to, beauty's going to be gatekept. I think historically, though, when you look at it, when a society or culture has an objective view of art, it actually democratizes it so that those are the cultures that build grand public buildings. Um those are the, the churches um, that are open all day for people to walk in and to see. Um, uh, there was a story a while back we talked about briefly where someone had stolen this like, insanely expect, expensive um, tabernacle or monstrance from a Roman Catholic church in Brooklyn. And, you know, some people are like, well, why should the church even have that, whatever else? Any homeless person on the street in Brooklyn could walk in and see that wonderful mm-hmm. um, piece of art. Now, we might not agree with the theology behind mm-hmm. it, <clears throat> tabernacle. Um but I would argue historically you could make a pretty good case that an objective view of art actually tends to make it more available. And the reason for that, partly at least, um, is, and I agree with morality as you mentioned, but beyond morality as well, I think an objective view of art, um, and I took notes here while you were talking so I could keep not going on a tangent, so I'm trying not to do that, um, is tied to a common societal view of people and their purpose. And I think that's what makes it especially challenging in America and Kreft points this out, is America was really, in history, the first nation to not have this like cultivated common view of what people are and what their purpose is. Um, we had it somewhat because the, those founding the country had shared, inherited values. Um, but we don't have you know uh, this kind of animating cultural assumption that you look at, at Europe and you have countries that have maybe long since lost the practice of their Christianity, but there's still like surprisingly sometimes things that are just hardwired into them. Um, and so I think that is part of what scares people in a very relativistic time as well is there's almost this knowledge that if we if we recognize that some beauty is objective, uh, as you mentioned, right, for, with the high schoolers, um, that this is opening us up to other assertions about who we are and our purpose. Um, uh, but we still see that we do have some shared cultural values today because what are the shows that succeed as you hit at? If people get really into a television show and it becomes like The Office, and you know people across the political spectrum can quote The Office, well, it succeeds to the degree that the aesthetic of the show and the plots can resonate across divides, right? Um, so there, there still is uh, some of that, right, and, and things that could be played to. Um, but to hit on craft uh, again, and um, and just there, to say, yep. you know, Pam's art is the best art sure. of all the art. The um, so. <laughs> but then finally, craft uh, gets at a little bit um, in his book on how to be holy. Um, I've been for this project I want to do. I've been reading like this like very eclectic thing. I'm, I want to do something on formation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so I'm looking for like common themes across even confessional divides, Mm -hmm. but like where people hit on something that truly is formative that what, what, what's the common themes, right? Um, Because even like Luther, Luther's not pulling things out of thin air. He's, he's, he's finding these things, right? Not only in the scriptures, but in, in church history. But anyways, um, Kreft points out love is, is a story, not a point of information. And because it's a story, it's a narrative, you you have, um, I'm reading now his book on Ecclesiastes, Job, and Song mm-hmm. of Songs. Mm-hmm. And um, you you have a Job, because, and Job, God speaks at two points in Job, at the beginning and at the end, but Job doesn't, God's not speaking to Job at the beginning. You have a Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have the great saints of the church. Um, we recognize this, and, and we, we resonate with movies where someone goes through all sorts of hardships. Um, but in the end, it's those hardships that make the person truly great in our eyes or that that love would not have been nearly so as much love without that. Um, and I think the cross, as you were saying, hits at that. Um, and a truly beautiful aesthetic, we'll get this too, and I'm beginning to wonder if we should just stay on this for this episode and do a follow-up episode on aesthetics in the church more specifically, but because we're yeah. at 40 minutes, unless and you want to transition I, there. No, I think we should leave that for, I think we should set this up because. Because I w- you know. the connection point I think will right. be is there's something too from pretty early on what we have of um, church art that has survived is almost always telling a story, mm-hmm. right? That the church itself is a narrative. Um, we see this even in churches that, you know, mission churches that were not built with the most resources but just have a few stained glass windows, whatever. They're seldom just completely random. Mm-hmm. You can put together, um, we are just, um, you know, even cavemen. <clears throat> There's a hunting tale or something, which probably means a whole lot more than just that they were hunting. Yeah. Um, but we can maybe make that transition later to aesthetics in the mm-hmm. church. But I just wanted to throw, especially that with the objectivity, because I think there is something really to that is that if beauty is to some degree objective, it's not like you can now just say to to beauty, stay in your lane. This has implications beyond just something that we take to be, um, you know, kind of an enjoyable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it speaks to something more about people. And maybe, the, so... And again, if the beauty is not in the thing, if there's not that objectivity, then there's really, you know, I mean, if it's not in the beholder, it's not in the eye of the beholder, then the other thing would be it's in the activity of the, the artist, right? That And then that becomes that whole gatekeeping thing that, you know, it's only if you're an artist do you, can you have a valid opinion. Only if you're an artist can you, can you declare something. Yeah art can you declare something beautiful or good or yeah and and this is where craft is really good with job um uh and with ecclesiastes and that he's like um these are the most beautiful philosophy books that there are and yet like god purposefully used that great authors <laughs> you know what i mean like like it's not like plato wrote it and it's not written like the iliad <clears throat> um and that's not to to say ecclesiastes isn't powerfully written but mm-hmm. The content definitely overpowers, um, but I would get at that. There's not always a flow, right? So if it's not in the beholder, um, some many would argue it's in the artist, and if you're not an artist, you might not understand. 
But here I think where the Lutheran doctrine of vocation and the idea of instrumentality is very important mm-hmm. is that rather um, it also could be argued that that, that that artist is simply instrument and that artist art is good insofar as they have recognized something beyond them, something bigger than them, and that that depiction of that truth has been channeled through them. And I don't think that has to in any way be conflated with like biblical inspiration. Um, But we do believe uh, that even the unbeliever can strike onto powerful truths, right? Um, It's why we can read Plato or Aristotle, um, uh, even with philosophy. And so I think the Christian could take an alternate view of this is good insofar as this person, often by life, right? They've been taught by life, by suffering, love, whatever the case may be, is um, is mirroring something greater than themselves. And I think maybe there, I mean, there's definitely some Platonism in there, I suppose, that I'm that I'm arguing, but I think vocation also could get us yeah, there. Yeah, and I, we got to be, Aristotle and Plato still, said some good th- you know what I mean like I sometimes I we're too hard on ourselves right to say oh that's Aristotelian or that's platonic uh two things one uh craft the three philosophies of life um so th- there's some Roman Catholic stuff in there where he's talking about Job as the picture of purgatory or whatever but right. anything you craft vary- is you just you have to go in knowing he's a Roman Catholic yeah you could but it's I think a very that book is a very easy switch to say it's not really purgatory it's probably talking more about this life I would suggest uh, to our listeners, the ones that are pastors at least, pick up everything you can on him. This guy's great. and, and uh, uh, With once again, he's very over. The nice thing, he's overtly wrong. He he's tells over, you when he's yeah, saying he something. Says you, he says Roman you're Catholic. absolutely, yeah. And, and he'll, the, the few places he talks about Lutherans, he's like, I don't know what the big deal. Why, why are we arguing, you know? Um, but he likes Kierkegaard and Bach. Yeah, so I, I think he... He he's he's a guy was at Boston College I believe. Yep. Um, Mark Brown really liked him too. I, he he he's a, he's a good author. Now back to the eye of the beholder. If if you know where where is it located? Is it located in the beholder? Is it located in the person who created the thing, or is it located in the object? Notice how close. Notice this is what we're talking about when we come to truth, right? If we say that beauty's in the eye of the beholder, we're, we're very we're very close to saying that truth is in the mind of the thinker or truth is only in the author. Um, and it's not something that is objectively true, right? Th- these are hard questions. And here post, yeah. post-modernity is somewhat helpful because they're going to say, no, the author doesn't completely control right. the text either. Yeah. Now they're going to do it in a very subjective way where right. the reader can now, the text now means this because the reader is going in. Um, but I think it can be helpful in the sense of um, all of all of us who have ever done anything creative have some at some point done something creative where we step back and went, I don't even know how I did that. Whether it be a particularly striking sermon, whether it be something that was painted, whether it be it, it can be a creative expression within the family of how something is carried out. But I would say at our most creative, we feel least like we practiced agency. Mm-hmm. over that thing, right? And that's to where I would say an author doesn't really have a right to gatekeep their own book too much because to the degree which it's good, it probably wasn't just the author at work. Right. 
And, you know, like we've said many before, the existentialists <coughs> and the postmoderns, they ask all the right questions. Their answers are, are the pro- problematic. But I like Crafty says that the, uh, at the end of the day, um, it's with, uh, you're either the only ones that turn to are the existentialists or the believers because they're the only ones that have the cojones to right. to give an answer. The, the, the believer with faith and the existentialist yeah. with the just, and, and there's Kref, no meaning. Kreft would say that the first existentialist was Solomon or whoever right. wrote Ecclesiastes. Yeah. So, um, but it's interesting where, where when you're talking about beauty, boy, the parallels when talking about truth are right there. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and who, who are the gatekeepers? Who are these things? Can we have access to beauty? Can we have access to truth? Where, uh, you know, postmoderns would say, many of them would say, no, you don't have access to it. Even if it does exist, we don't even know because we don't have access to it. And I think the response, of course, to that is, but that's not how you live your life, whether it comes to truth or beauty. And so... Um, instead of kind of speculating and getting myself twisted into all sorts of philosophical knots, which you can about anything. I mean, a philosopher can finally convince you about anything, right? A, a good sophist is, is, is can convince you of anything. But the way I look at my life, I, that I, I know that that's beauty. And, and if I'm thoughtful enough, I can say, but that may be somewhat my preference. And yet n- there's a collective sense of that that's beautiful and it's tied, I think once again to morality more than, than we often and order. And and by we, mora- even, even like, you right. know, like, by morality, if I'm, I don't want to speak for you, but Mike doesn't simply mean, um, 10 commandments or do this, don't do that. Think more. You mean order. something behind morality yeah. as well. Yeah. Like th- there is a right and wrong. Right. And, and I think order is, and even from a, you know, if you want to atomize everything and, and make it purely hard scientific, you know, uh, if we run a test on what we think is beautiful, I'll give you a bunch of faces and you have to, you have to rate them or whatever. See, it's people that are right. Symmetrical, right? There's, there's a sense of order. Like a nice, perfectly round head. <laughs> a sense who, of who couldn't appreciate order. that, right? There's a sense of order <laughs> that, that is a part of, Mm-hmm. morality and of beauty whether you like it or not so it's kind of it's an interesting space to have a discussion because you're going to have people who are just going to object who want to maintain this this relative notion of beauty you're going to have people that are that i think us classical thinkers sort of thing that's kind of a bad bad way to put it but then you're also going to have people who only think that the heart a Wittgensteinian who's only going to think that Hardcore science is things that can be proven data-wise are going to be true. And the people that think only in, in that data gets us to truth probably would align themselves, ironically, with the classic um, Renaissance thinker or the classic Christian thinker who would say there's some objectivity to it. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting space. And I, I would say even the person who wants to completely subjectivize beauty. Um, one of the things that betrays their either naivete or insincerity is that in the presence of things they find beautiful, they actually, to some degree, surrender themselves to them. Um, they don't stand over them. <clears throat> um, this is why we can oftentimes talk about things that are beautiful as being kind of an immersive experience. Um, 
you're contemplating the painting and you get lost in it. It's no fun to look at a painting and just go, it was painted in this day and <clears throat> this brushstroke or whatever. But you get, or the beautiful song, right? Um, you just, it's like David playing for a Saul, right? That song <clears throat> somehow soothes you. Um, and so I think that belies the fact that deep down we know um, that when we encounter the beautiful, it's bigger than us. Think of beautiful moments in life. Those lives that uh, the when it, what what happened in those moments is you kind of lost yourself. Um, you you were completely no longer um, insecure in any way about yourself. Um, you weren't thinking about what came before or what came ne comes next. You were, and I don't want to get all existential, but but you were in that moment, right? Um, maybe it was a big life event. Um, maybe it was falling in love. I mean, why do we say falling in love, right? What's the beauty of falling in love? It's it's that you're not really in control of it, and it's just happening to you. Not a cognitive decision. Right. Although there are intellectual components sure. to it, right? Like there's there are things intellectually you like about this person that you could explain. Um, but uh, and, and so I think this really undercuts this notion that, that we can um, – become Lord over. And I would say too, I'm not talking about like you give yourself over to those things in an idolatrous way. That that's, that's not what, um, that's not what I'm saying at all. Think vocational. You lose yourself in the craft of it's your job. It's precisely because those things are gift of God. Yeah. You're what you're giving yourself over is to the giver of that. You are recognizing a hand behind that. You are recognizing something behind that and even when you're right when you're falling in love you're not you're not simply lost in that person um you're you're in essence lost in the one who has given you that person you're, you're being you're grateful and right great you're being lifted higher than yourself right um and to be grateful is to right you have to have something to which you're grateful um and uh and you don't it's it would be odd to say um you know to your love, you know, I'm grateful to you for being you. You say I'm grateful for you, right? It, it would almost be negating their goodness to somehow make them the author of it. It's, and, and so I think that, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, is it really, yeah. or do you, if it is truly beautiful, kind of, you don't want that boundary between you and that thing, if you're honest, that, part of the experience this is why people love concerts or sporting events and this is well i have never myself enjoyed playing it because you just run forever one of the coolest sporting events to go to is like a legit soccer game right um because a legit soccer game like in contrast to most american sports is not just watching a game like it's it's an experience, right? And there's all kinds of different things going on here, things bigger than the game, whatever. There's song, there's smoke things being set off. Sometimes, unfortunately, there's... Uh, um, Hooligans and brawls. Yes. Um, but what, what draws people into that moment is, is something bigger than, them, than themselves. And, and we might not say, well, why do they call soccer the beautiful game? I don't think it's merely because people just run forever and unsuccessfully
kick a ball around for like 89 of 90 minutes. I the most of the game, and to be fair, there's not a lot of scoring in hockey or baseball, but there's like little, and I guess there are little victories in soccer too, like, oh, that was a really well-defended thing. But the beautiful game, I think what they mean is everything coming together in that. And maybe that will be something when we then pick up and talk about aesthetics in the church as well, um, is how um, those things are, are brought together um, in the experience that the person has. You know, Luther loves to talk about for less and you surrender yourself, but he doesn't mean it in like an American evangelical way or some goofy way. Um, but to lose yourself in God, well, where do you encounter God? And that would maybe be something, right? God institutes to some degree an aesthetic. He says, take water and baptize, take, take bread and wine, right? And that, that meal, that's a, a certain aesthetic. It says something, um, but maybe we can pick up with that next time. I'll throw it to you guys. I talk too much, but anything else you guys want to hit on with, or you can disagree with everything I've just said. I know I... I think it's a good discussion, you know, and it's one of those where we could see some counterpoints, right? But, but, but it's a good discussion to have. And I think what we'll do next time is probably talk a lot about the incarnation, right? That, uh, that, that, G, that God becoming man's kind of a game changer when it comes to, comes to art and that. You mean, you mean God becoming truly human, Michael? Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> um, uh, when you when you look back at history there's always going to be art but there seems to be that modernity if there was ever an era that tried to fight against art it was that and I think there's some reasons for that and uh, looking forward to the future where we have put that behind us yeah hopefully yeah all right. All right, Jason, you got anything you want to say? No, I don't think I got anything really much more to say. I was just, I've just been trying to keep in all my office quotes uh, after you brought it up. But I think I, you know, aside from the one, um, managed pretty well. Well, I appreciate that. And Michael has officially taken off his headset. Um, we have an episode that's under an hour, so that's a success, under 55 minutes. We'll try to leave it that way. Um, and, uh, Jason, you've not been here often, so I will treat you as a guest. And so... Um, in a world uh, that has plenty of ugly, but also uh, has behind it a true beauty for it has been given us from the hand of God. Uh, what really should the, the Christian do? Let the bird fly. Another round, another round, one more round won't get me down.